Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 1? I am very excited this morning, and just like Brad said, uh, a little reverently, reverently fearful, fairly humbled, a little apprehensive to open up this important and often neglected and often misused book of the Bible. We're going to begin a 16-week walkthrough. That's not quite one week per chapter, but if we, if we gave this the, the length of time in, a, in, a, in sermons that it deserves in terms of academic study, we'd be here for the next decade. So you have to stop somewhere. And um, 16 seemed right as we started mapping out the various, the, the flow of the books. So that's going to be our spring semester, pretty much is here in Revelation together. This book, I think it's fair to say, this book is one of the hardest to understand in the entire Bible. And uh, there certainly is a lot of debate surrounding this book and its, uh, its meaning and its symbology. There's a variety of opinions about what everything precisely means and how we're supposed to use it, if at all. Um, yesterday morning, I gave a seminar uh, over in the multi-purpose room surveying the four major historic takes on this book, and I, I, I want to recommend, and this is not self-promotion, I do want to recommend that you, that you do give that a listen if you can, um, for those of you who weren't able to make it, that you do give that a listen if you can, just it'll help, I think, broaden your horizons on the possibilities, and I know it's weird to hear a preacher say, be open-minded, uh, but that's, I, and when it comes to this stuff, the kind of open-mindedness I mean is, just be aware, just be aware of how people have thought about this, how other Spirit-filled, Bible-believing, Bible-revering, evangelical Christians have thought about this over the centuries. I mean, this, this series has been some time in the making for us as pastors. A couple of years ago, we realized we're coming to the end of, uh, of kind of our teaching plan, and we need to uh, let's let's put in our votes for what books should we do this next uh, this next cycle. And I said Revelation and Romans. That was the other thing I said, but I say that every time. So. Um, <laughs> But with Revelation, we all sort of went, ah, I don't know if we know what to do with that book. And I said, well, that seems like a problem to me that we should fix. Uh, we're supposed to, our job as, as pastors over the church is to feed you with the word of God. And if we are neglecting one of the books because we're not sure about it, that is a problem that we need to fix. So we went about fixing it. And by God's grace, I think have made some progress over the last couple of years, especially this past a uh, little over a year now, we did uh, a class together. Some of you joined us for that. It was extremely helpful. And I know uh, for myself and a number of the other teachers, and I, I think the rest of the elders as well, we've put hundreds of hours into this together. Um, hundreds of hours. And I know for some of you, that sounds like weak sauce. You've been doing this for 40 or 50 years, and you've put thousands of hours into it. Um, and I appreciate that as well. Uh, I really do. And we are going to also continue to add to that study and that, importantly, not just study in our own little offices with our heads and books, but also discussion together as elders about what is the relevance of this book for our church. I did want to begin with a few notes about this series here. Um, and the first is that we'll, we'll probably disappoint you with this book. Uh, with, with, our, with our sermons here. We're probably not going to be able to scratch every curiosity itch and answer every question that you have 
about Revelation. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover every single possible detail contained in this book in this setting this morning, or this morning and, and throughout the next 16 weeks. What we are hoping to do, though, we are hoping to do every Sunday morning is the same thing we're trying to do every Sunday morning, and that is faithfully minister the Word of God to you using the same biblical, solid, conservative, evangelical, hermeneutic approach that we've always used in every book we've ever preached. So if you appreciated the way we went through Luke, that's the same thing we're trying to do with Revelation. Same reverence for God's holy word, the same concern that we help you understand and put into practice the stuff contained here with the same goal that we have every time we preach of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ in our preaching. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And so I'd ask you that in the next 16 weeks as we do this together, that you extend to us pastors your trust. Not trusting that we have all the correct specific viewpoints and answers to every mystery contained in this book. We don't. But... I think we have a pretty good idea of what's going on in this book. And uh, also very well appreciate the possibilities of what's going on in this book. And I would just ask that whether you are brand new to this book, you're unfamiliar with it, or whether you feel like you're a seasoned veteran with this book, and by the way, that survey we sent out last fall, uh, about 120 of you responded to. Thank you for that. And we are all over the map here at Stonebrook. Whether you feel like a seasoned veteran or you're brand new and have no idea what's going on with this book, I ask that you are patient with us and trust us that we are going to major on the majors in this book. And if your specific question is not answered, if your specific curiosity is not scratched, if your specific favorite topic is not spoken of from the stage, it might be, and here's what I'm going to ask you to trust us, it might be that the focus of the text is not quite what you assumed it to be. It also might just be that we didn't have time to fit everything in. So, because there's not time to fit everything in, we are hoping, Lord willing, to provide you with a number of other resources to accompany this series, including yesterday's seminar and others like it. We have one more planned for March as well. Uh, a list of recommended reading, a list of recommended listening or viewing. We've got some videos, we've got some podcasts, we've got some articles, we've got some books that we think will be helpful supplements to what we're doing here on Sunday morning. As well as the opportunity to respond to questions you have. So if you take a look at the scripture journal and just look in the inside cover, you'll see sort of the series guide, the series schedule, our current plan and we say, Lord willing, this plan is with an open hand, and it's not in concrete. It is in ink, but not in concrete. I'm willing to paste another sticker over that if we have to. Um, you'll notice that, that uh, a few times throughout the series, we're, we have a, pl a panel planned. So we're going to take, take the podium away, and we're going to set up some chairs, and we're going to have some of the pastors up here, and we're going to discuss some other options. We're going go, to rewind the tape and go back through the sections we just covered and talk about some things that we left on the clipping room floor. We're going to respond to any questions we get from you in the meantime, and we're going to discuss some of the other options that are out there with the goal of encouraging you and strengthening you and helping clarify what this word is so that you are able to be blessed by it. That's the goal. And so with that introduction, I think the best way to get started with this book is to jump right in. So please, let's read 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. When I say the word apocalypse, what comes to your mind? Did I hear doom? Doom. End of the world. Say it again. Zombies. Same. What else? Apocalypse. Fire. Explosions and screaming. Death. This is good. I mean, probably some cataclysmic event like a meteor falling to the earth, plunging society into, the, into chaos and disorder and war and bringing about the end of civilization as we know it. Marvel does a really good job of making those movies. Right? That's probably, I mean, and when we were in high school, what was it, Armageddon, you know, that don't want to miss a thing, you know. <laughs> That was a great song. I mean, that's, that's what, listen to the dictionary definition. The dictionary definition of apocalypse is the complete and final destruction of the world as described in the book of Revelation. Ooh. Here's the deal. We get our modern definition of the word apocalypse from the book of Revelation. But if we want to understand the book of Revelation, we have to get rid of that definition. The, the first five words of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, this gives us the title of the book. In Greek, and I, 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 I don't want to vow to this, but I'm pretty sure, looking ahead, this is the only Greek I'm going to do <laughs> from the stage. In Greek, the, the very first word of the book is apocalypse. It's actually apocalypsis, but whatever. Apocalypse. And the word apocalypse does not mean, in this context, the cataclysmic destruction at the end of the world. What it does mean is revelation. It means uncovering. Apo, un, kaluptein, cover. Apocalyptic, apocalypsis, uncover. Its, its verb form would be to reveal or to uncover. And that's what this whole book is. The revelation of Jesus. This book reveals Jesus to us. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ, there's some ambiguity in, in the, the two words that make up the revelation of Jesus. There's three words that make up the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the, the ambiguity we can also see in English. We don't need the Greek for this. The phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in English, and by the way, in Greek, 
That's why it's in English that was this way. Most of the time when you hear a, a, somebody like saying, if you look at the Greek, what it actually says, and it's something fundamentally different from what the English says, you're like, all your lights should go up. Because in Greek, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Greek words there, they mean the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's literally what they mean. But there's some ambiguity. The revelation of Jesus Christ could either mean the revelation about Jesus or it could mean the revelation from Jesus. Do you see the difference? And that seems significant, doesn't it? The Greek does what, have one other possibility in its most literal form. It's Jesus' revelation, which is no more clear. Could still be either of this. So which is it? And I that in this book, you have to pick both of them. <laughs> both of them. We see in this book that it's non-specific intentionally. John could have been more specific in Greek if he wanted to be. It's non-specific intentionally. And as we go through this book, we are going to see that this book contains the revelation about Jesus. Like I said, Jesus is revealed in this book. And who's doing the revealing? Jesus. He's revealing himself in verse 3, as verse 3 says, to bless and encourage and strengthen the church. Verse 3 is really important. Blessed is the one who reads the words aloud of this prophecy. So we have been keeping ourselves from a blessing as a church by avoiding reading this book out loud. And you have been kept from a blessing by not hearing these words read aloud to you. But if we read aloud these words and you hear them and keep what is written here, we will all be blessed. And that's why this book was written. Jesus is blessing and encouraging the original recipients of this letter in the first century. And he's blessing and encouraging the original, the, the church, the church in the second century. And he's blessing and encouraging the church in the third century, and in the fourth century, and in the sixth century, and in the 16th century, and in the 21st century, and possibly will still be encouraging the church in the 26th century if he doesn't come back first. That's what this book is for. Verse 3 tells us blessing is the purpose of this book. Why should we study Revelation? To get the blessing of this book. Revelation has been a divisive book in the church. I think that's fair to say. We did get some feedback. Why Revelation? Isn't, it, this is, isn't the possibility to divide there? Yes, it is. My biggest fear about this series as we've been running up to it has been that this series will divide our church, that people will leave because of it. All the debates about the precise meaning of all the symbology and all the timeline presented in here, I'm not saying those debates aren't important and that it's not important to find some level of confidence about the meaning of the symbols. I'm not saying that's not important. I'm just saying that I think that all of the debates and all of the uncertainty, the focus on those things is a distraction. And if I were Admiral Akbar, I would say, it's a trap. 
That's a Star Wars reference for those of you who have not seen Star Wars. Okay. I believe that there is spiritual attack on the church, and I'm not just trying to be a prophetic warning flag, but I think our enemy is trying to distract us and confuse us by getting us off track so that we, you know what, I'm just going to avoid this book because it's too confusing and too divisive. When we are supposed to be paying attention, we're getting distracted from the things we're supposed to be paying attention to in the book by all the little details that seem so confusing. Why is he doing that? Why is our enemy trying to distract us from this book? Here's why. The central message of this book that shines so clearly when you understand this book and don't pay attention at the moment to all the little difficult details, the central message that signs so clearly is so powerful for our everyday experience as believers in Christ. So our enemy, of course, is going to put that under attack. And instead, when you read the book of Revelation, he's going to try to get you to focus in on, now wait, why is the beast red? What, what does red mean? Well, let's look at all the occurrences of red here and in the literature and what with the red you know, it breaks down into this math. And then we start doing some math on the word red. And that's, that's, that's a caricature. That's not what's happening. But you see what I'm saying? We get distracted by the little details. And we miss the fact that it's a woman riding on a beast. That's a big deal. We know exactly what's going on there. But let's keep reading. And by the way, we are going to get to what that beast is talking about. We think we have some idea of what's going on in that passage. But the central message is so powerful in our everyday experience. That's right. Revelation has powerful relevance for your everyday experience on this planet. And that's been true to the first century church all the way through the ages down to our church and will continue to be true until Jesus comes back. We'll get to how it does that here in a minute. Stay tuned. <laughs> The next thing I want to notice about this first five words, I'm spending all the time on the first five words, is that it's the revelation of Jesus, not the revelations of Jesus. This book is not called Revelations. It's called Revelation. Singular. And that's significant. It's significant. What we find in this book is one whole singular Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not tiny fragmented pieces that we're supposed to spread out on a table and try to piece back together. Not a bunch of revelations. One revelation. It's also, it's a revelation, not an obfuscation. It's an uncovering, like I said, not a cover up. It's meant to clarify, not to encrypt. For those of you computer nerds out here with me. It's meant to show, not to hide. One way I heard it put that I think is really powerful is that Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. But Matt... This book is pretty puzzling. That's right. But it's only puzzling, and I don't mean this to be a rebuke. It's only puzzling because we are not as familiar with our whole Bible as we should be. 
And I want to say in some ways, I was a little hesitant in the thought process behind these scripture journals as a tool. Uh, and only for this reason, only for this reason. I'm, I, I hope what we're not communicating uh, is that um, you can like leave this book at home and just bring the little one. I hope we're not communicating that because you're going to need the whole book to understand Revelation. What we want with this book is that you'll have a handy little notebook journal that kind of contains all the notes. So what I'm saying is bring both with you because we are going to be flipping back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand what's going on in this book. Um, one, other, one other way of saying this is for the last several years, my habit for my daily devotion in the scriptures and my daily, uh, you know, almost every day, reading the word of God, my habit for the last several years has been audio Bible. It's just easier and I can go for a walk or do an exercise or something. I can multitask. I can go for a walk and behold creation and listen and concentrate on the word of God. What I started noticing as we started focusing on this study of Revelation over the year, year and a half is I was kind of just listening. You know how it is when you're listening to an audiobook. Your, your mind kind of wanders, and that's just real. Even your pastor does that. Is that like, wait, I thought I was listening mid, midway through the Bible. I was in the prophets, and I'm like, wait, did I? This literally happened. I picked up my phone because I thought I had accidentally hit fast forward to Revelation. I was in Ezekiel. Same, same experience happened to me in Daniel. Oh, this sounds just like Revelation. And I put this together, and I'm not going to get too weird about this, but it says, blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy as they are read aloud. Huh. Because if you grew up and your habit was hearing the Old Testament read aloud in synagogue every week and in synagogue school, Daily, you would be familiar with some of the phrasing that you would hear, and hearing is a little more of a powerful memory, cognitional connection, that was not a word, um, that connects the phrases together. That sounds familiar, is the experience we're supposed to have when we read out loud Revelation. I want to say this, all the imagery and symbolism that seems so confusing in Revelation, all of it that we're meant to understand can be found and understood not by looking at a newspaper, but by looking at the Old Testament. Do you want to know what the locusts with scorpion tails are about? Read your Old Testament. They're there. And we're going to see that in a minute. Let's keep reading. John, verse 4. Sorry, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Starts with the word. <laughs> John, <laughs> to the seven churches in Asia. And I'm going to push pause again, and I apologize. We didn't get much farther. <laughs> There's a variety of explanations as to the significance of the seven churches here. Um, I think the clearest, uh, clearest explanation that I found, and this is, uh, this is my opinion. I will put that disclaimer, my opinion. Um, the clearest explanation here is that these were the seven most influential churches in Asia, Asia Minor, churches which were under John's care. That was his, his kind of his 
circuit. He could speak to these seven churches and ensure that the rest of the churches in Asia would hear the message. Okay? So they were, the, they were kind of the pillar churches from which training and messengers and people in relationships would spread out to the rest of Asia. And indeed, that happened. In fact, the whole church ever since throughout the world has heard this letter because of the address and the sending to these seven churches. But here's my question when I was reading this. Why seven? Why not three? Why not ten? Why not twelve? Why not give that messenger the big task of just making the circuit of all of the churches? Well, here's the thing. Seven is a really interesting number in Revelation. It, in fact, of the several numbers that recur in Revelation, is the most popular of them. And a very common understanding of the number seven is that it represents completeness or fullness. And it echoes, the reason it represents that is that it echoes the seven days of creation. So God completed his work, and on the seventh day he rested. Seven is an important number. So John, in a sense, he was writing to a complete number of churches. He could have written to three. He could have written to 10. He could have written to 14 with the same effect. But he said, you know what? I'm going to write to seven because I'm going to do a lot of things in sevens in this book because it's going to help them know something, that this, is in, this was the intended complete thing that's going on. So I'm not going to make much more big a deal about the number seven, but just heads up, number seven is everywhere in Revelation. So he was indicating the universal applicability in writing to seven churches. He was saying, I'm writing to all the churches. This was to those seven churches specifically, yes, but it was also to all the others. And I guarantee you that next week, I'm just stealing a little bit of Brad's thunder from next week. I guarantee you, when the messenger showed up to the church at Laodicea, they were like, ah, skip all the other churches. I don't want to hear what he had to say to them. Just what did he have to say to us? <laughs> guarantee you they were listening to what he had to say to Smyrna and Philadelphia and all the others. But what does he say? Let's keep reading. Finally, I'm going to move on, Matt. Move on. Okay. Here's what he says. Grace and peace to you from the one who is who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And pause. He begins his letter in actually a very standard way. The very standard way that an apostle writes a letter to the churches. Read all the letters to the churches in the New Testament. They begin with this formula, grace and peace to you from God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. More or less, that's the formula. That's what he's saying here. It's complicated. It's beautiful. And it evokes something into you when you read it, doesn't it? The sevenfold spirit. The seven spirits can also be the sevenfold spirit. It's, it's, it's one very popular, very common understanding is that the seven spirits is just speaking of the Holy Spirit. Along, the next thing in this greeting is another thing that letters to the churches typically contain. An expression of praise. 
He loves us. He has set us free from our sins by his blood, and he has made us a kingdom and priest. It's a reminder of the gospel. To him who did that, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then the letter gets interesting. What he's doing here is we read verse 7. He is uh, using phrases that if you were familiar with hearing the Old Testament read out loud would be your first ding. That sounds familiar. He combines phrases from Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. Probably most notably, Daniel and Zechariah is what he's doing. The prophets tended to steal lines from each other. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. And then he delivers the most significant reminder as speaking from God himself in the first person. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then we're off with the letter. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's pause. Look at this. Partner. I am your partner. John says, I'm your partner in what? Tribulation. That word affliction is the word tribulation. I am your partner in tribulation. I am your partner in kingdom. And I am your partner in endurance that are in Jesus. And I think, I think, Matt Harima thinks, this verse sets up the main message of Revelation. As one commentator puts it, faithful endurance through tribulation is the means by which one reigns, is a kingdom, in the present time with Jesus. Because John says, I'm your partner in these things. It's going on for you, and it's going on for me right now in the first century. I am your partner in these things, and they are in Jesus. So here's a reflection point for just a second. It seems clear from John's statement here, because he was doing it, and he was writing to churches to encourage them as they were experiencing this, we should expect trial, tribulation in this life. We should expect tribulation in this life because of our identity in and speaking out about Jesus. That ministry got John exiled to the island of Patmos, and it had the church he was writing to under persecution. So here's our question for us as a church. We'll focus more on this next week as well. Is our marginalization in the culture because of our identity of, in and speaking out about Jesus? Or are we being marginalized in our culture for some other reason or are we not actually being marginalized in the culture at all? We're just, everybody's just cool with us. Before we get into the, the rest of chapter one here, I wanted to back up a second and kind of set, set, a, set the stage for you because one of, the, one of our important interpretive principles 
is that we are first to understand what the author intended to communicate to the audience. So John, the apostle, John, God inspired him. In fact, so, in a very intense sort of way, he showed up and said, write this down. <laughs> to write these things. But think of the context. So we're supposed to also consider the historic context. How might the first century church have received this? Think about... Think about the first century church. Think about being in one of those seven churches and their brother and sister churches, about basically just all over the world. Can you imagine being in the church in the first century? Just a second. Imagine that. Uh, we didn't have the internet back then. I was there. We didn't have it. No cell phones. Uh, messages, messages, mess, messages came from messengers. Messengers, angels, messengers, same word. Messages came from messengers uh, with, you know, in written form usually or sometimes verbal relay, but most of the time written because the apostle had something important and wanted to make sure it was happen happened verbatim, so I'm writing it down because this is the inspired word of God. Messenger, take this to the seven churches. Can you imagine being in the first century under persecution, under duress, under pressure, wavering through the hardship of life that we experience, but also under the pressure of being marginalized in a culture. Some of my brothers and sisters from Africa and Asia here can actually re uh, uh, relate to that very closely. Can you, can you relate to the fact that Jesus, who promised to be back soon, has been gone for 60 years now? 60 years. He was supposed to be back soon. Where is he? Peter had to write a letter about that. Where is he? It's getting really hard. People are starting to die. Where is he? We're marginalized in a culture. We're a little confused about what's going on. Can you imagine they didn't have the New Testament scriptures either? They had some letters that they probably copied. They had the Old, Old Testament uh, scriptures but they were trying to remember the teaching. They were trying to remember, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we, how are we supposed to deal with this conflict? And the church is dividing. We're under pressure from the synagogue. We're under pressure from the government. We're under pressure from our families. This is getting really hard. What's happening? He's not coming back yet. I thought he said he was going to be back soon. Is this even real? And not to mention that, but our brother John, who's been taking care of us this whole time, he's now exiled on the island of Patmos. And hasn't been making his visits. Things are getting a little gloomy. Hope may be fading. I might be becoming discouraged in my faith. Maybe all of this was for nothing. And then somebody shows up and says, I have a letter from John. <gasps> okay, a letter from John. What does he say? Guess what? It's not just from John. Jesus told him to tell us something. How would you receive that? Think about John. Think about John for a second. Think about John. Think about John, teenage John. It was probably when he was called out of his life of, what am I, what am I even doing here? Our whole country is under occupation from the Roman Empire. This is getting ridiculous. Where's Messiah? It's been hundreds of years since we've had a prophetic word. 
Is this Messiah thing even real? And then a man named Jesus shows up and calls you to follow him. And for three years, you spend living your entire life with this man who taught you everything you wished you knew. Healed, healed people, fed people. Finally, this is him. The Messiah is finally here. And he loves me. I'm the beloved disciple. And then can you imagine at the foot of the cross when it seems like the empire got him? What am I supposed to do? And he's telling you, take care of mom. And then he dies and we bury him. And we go back into hiding because what next? And then three days later, he shows up. What? And he spends time clarifying, teaching, connecting to the Old Testament and you're, this book is lighting up like it's never lit up before. And then he ascends into heaven. He says, I'm coming back soon. Don't worry, I'm coming back soon. Okay, he's coming back soon. He goes, go, go tell everybody. So you go and tell everybody and you start all of these churches in Asia Minor doing this work, encouraging these people. This is the life. He's coming back soon. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, all right, let's change our lives entirely. And then you get arrested and then you get arrested. Wait, what? And legend has it, tortured, dipped in boiling oil for your faith, for your ministry. What? And then you get separated from the people you love and who have become family, and you are exiled alone on the island of Patmos. Where is he? And all I have to connect me with the people who are keeping me encouraged and I'm keeping them encouraged is just letters. It's just letters. Letters that have fed the church for 2,000 years, by the way. But one day when you're praying, you hear, write this down. And you look and you see him. What do you see though? You see the one who was, the one you remember, the one who taught me everything, the one who showed us the way to live, the one who before that created everything and before that was an eternal glory with the Father. The one who saved us from our sins washed us clean by his blood. The one who was and the one who is. He's not dead. He's alive. And the one who is to come. He's coming back to fix everything. There's some intense imagery here in the next seven verses. There's some intense allusion to the Old Testament, but I think first, before we get into that, we are meant to hear the words and take them in like hearing a song, like beholding a masterful painting and sculpture and being moved by it. So bear with me. John says, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, 
And his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like bronze as it fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will soon take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do you see the imagery? Jesus holds the churches in his hand. The son of man, a familiar phrase from Daniel 7, being given a kingdom and authority and glory forever. Daniel 10, the exact description, almost verbatim. In Daniel, it says he has a golden belt. Here it says he has a golden sash. I looked up the words. They're the same words, so it's all right. What we're seeing, the seven lampstands. Interestingly, where are lampstands in the Old Testament? They're in the temple. You're seeing a man in a temple. Dressed in a robe. Standing among the lampstands. This is Jesus, the priest. The great high priest of the church. The son of man in Daniel is the king and the ruler. We have the priest and the king. We have Jesus. And he says, write on a scroll, just like the angel of the Lord told Moses, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. So John here, I'm going to wrap up with, here's what John's doing. John is setting the tone and the expectations for the book with this simple introduction. Simple and glorious introduction. He's, he lets us know what he's doing, how he's writing this. How is John writing this book? Well, first, he's using intense and symbolic imagery rooted, and linked, rooted in and linked to the Old Testament. We should expect that that's what's coming. Second, some of this injury, or injury, imagery, hopefully not injury, some of the imagery, the stuff that needs to be, will be explicitly clarified. This is what the seven lampstands and the seven stars are. We should expect that. It's pretty clear what those symbols refer to. And some of the imagery is such an obvious Old Testament link that we're meant to call it to mind instantly. But what about the rest of the imagery? There's other images that are not either explicitly defined or so explicitly linked to the Old Testament. What are we supposed to do with that? Here's my encouragement for us. This is my opinion about what we are supposed to do with the rest of the imagery. We are supposed to remember that this is a picture book not a puzzle book. And we are supposed to remember that John is painting pictures and setting moods. Maybe we're not supposed to get so specific. 
about what the blazing eyes mean other than it's just the son, it's the son of man from Daniel. What's the significance of his voice sounding like cascading waters? Again, Daniel. Maybe we're just meant to get a picture in our minds, an impression, and the impression that it leaves is the point. I want to I clarify it when I mean that. The impression that the words leave is the point. I don't like getting super subjective when it comes to the scriptures. I'm a pretty black and white dude. I've been encouraged throughout my ministry. If it doesn't say clearly, we're not meant to know. But John is masterful in his writing. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm moved to tears when I read it. And I'm moved to, wow, glory when I read about the dragons and the battles. And, the, and I think that's the point. He's painting pictures of how big and powerful Jesus is and what the stakes are in eternity and what's going on in the spiritual realm in ways that humble us and let us stand in awe. And I think that's the point. I don't like getting super subjective at all. How do you feel about this when it comes to the scriptures? But I think there is some of that going on and... The subjective stuff is anchored in clear, objective stuff that's linked to the Old Testament. It's not going to add to the meaning. It's going to add to the feeling. We're supposed to feel a certain way about this book. This, just, this doesn't mean, let me, I'm just, just going to be triply clear. <laughs> this doesn't mean, just, just for whatever you feel it means, that's what it means. That's not what I'm saying. It means what it means, but it's also meant to leave an impression. We are supposed to feel something as we read this book. And that's what John's doing here. Secondly, he's setting an expectation. What is this book about? And the answer is it's not a what, it's a who. This book is all about Jesus. And here's my encouragement. Keep your eyes on him through this entire book. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? What is this book revealing about Jesus? That's going to give you the main thread on which everything else hangs. What is the main message? Here's my take. I'm going I'm to attempt this. I'm open to discussion on it. But I'm keying off of verse 9 here and many other verses throughout the entire book which highlight the themes Tribulation, kingdom, and endurance, all because of Jesus. One commentator, he put it this way, and I'll just steal his words with some attribution. Revelation's central message is that believers can overcome the tribulations of life, even persecution and martyrdom, because of the victory won by the Lamb of God. And just because, just because, that might leave some of you a little like, what, what? It's using imagery about future events to do that. The reason for the imagery of the future events is to help us with this message in the present. Those events that it's talking about are real in some way, and they will happen in some way at some time. But the purpose for us of them is this. And that's where we're headed with the series I'm looking forward to it. So pray with me.
Lord Jesus, I'm just thankful for this book. I'm so thankful, not just for the book. More importantly, Lord, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for my brother John writing this stuff down. I'm thankful for his perseverance in the faith through torture, through marginalization, through isolation. You helped him persevere. You helped the church in the first century not be stamped out by a seemingly invincible empire, seemingly invincible religious opponents. You helped them persevere. You won a victory for us. You showed us the way to victory through the doors of death into resurrection. Lord, I just pray for my church. I don't mean because it's mine, it's yours. I mean because I'm part of it. My brothers and sisters. I pray for the next 16 weeks as we, we go about this difficult book that you would help us be patient with each other, patient with you. You'd help us to love one another well. Lord, I believe that the blessing that is to be experienced in this book is the blessing of unity and perseverance together in this trial of life through tribulation. I pray that you'd help us persevere, help us encourage one another, bring you, Jesus, to each other. Be your hands and feet. Be your body. That's what you call us. And Lord, all of the little sub-lessons that you'd have us learn through this book, help us to do that. Help us as preachers to be faithful to your word. Help us as hearers to be faithful to your word, to do what it says. You told us to do what it says. Apparently there's something to be done here. So Lord, we just stand in awe of who you are and what you've done, and I just ask for your help this spring. In Jesus' name, amen.